the biography of Ulysses S. Grant. And you read about the family dynamics, so this is, of course, in the early chapters of the book, but you read about the family dynamics in the Grant household, and it's really quite interesting. When Ulysses was growing up, his father owned a tannery, and that's, uh, that's not a business for the faint of heart, and it's not the kind of business you want to live next door to either. <laughs> uh, my understanding is, at least at that time, um, the tannering process was a rather um, odorous process, left quite a stench. Uh, the Grants lived across the street from the business, and Ulysses said when he was a child, his, uh, in, the, in the hot summer, uh, his, the windows would be open, and the, the fragrance from across the street would waft into his, into his bedroom, and he'd have to bury his face in his pillow to deal with the stench. So that was not a, a, a wonderful place necessarily to work, but when Ulysses was a teenager, his dad told him that he was going to have to go to work in the tannery, and he was going to work in the most deplorable, uh, most deplorable area in the plant. Well, uh, Ulysses didn't exactly like the idea of that uh, prospect, and he let his dad know that, said he didn't want to do it, but out of respect for his father, he went to work in the tannery. About a year later, maybe a little more, without his son's knowledge, uh, the dad fired off an application to West Point, got the, the necessary um, recommendations from, uh, from the uh, senator in their state, and um, Ulysses had no knowledge of it whatsoever. Then he said, you're going to West Point. You've been accepted, and you're shipping out in however many weeks. Well, again, Ulysses was not too happy about this. He had no desire whatsoever to go to West Point. He, he had even less desire of being in the military, of being in armed forces. He had no desire for that whatsoever. But out of respect for his father, he packed up all his earthly goods and left home and from Cincinnati and went to West Point. And it is because of that that he ultimately came the eight, became the 18th president of the United States. Can you imagine such a, fi a family dynamic as that in our enlightened, sophisticated, vastly superior 21st century when a dad would tell his son, you're going to go work here? And the son says, well, I don't really particularly want to, but okay, Dad, you're going to go here to college? And the son says, I don't particularly want to, but okay, Dad, because I respect you, I will go. It happens, but not too commonly, does it? I wonder, I wonder if a lot of what we're seeing played out among mostly young people in our television sets these days with um, screaming and uh, violent attitudes toward police officers, horrible, uh, horrible language, terrible disrespect for any kind of authority. I wonder if that has something to do with family dynamics. I wonder if it has something to do with 
fathers and maybe the lack of fathers. I wonder. Well, one of the wonderful things about the gospel of Jesus Christ is its transformative power. We talked uh, in the book of Ephesians, the gospel has a power to transform you personally. First three chapters, Paul is really addressing the individual uh, believers that make up a local church and talks about what God in His grace has done for them uh, individually and personally. But then beginning in chapter 4, he, uh, he applies all that God has done for the individual to that individual and tells them you need to walk worthy. But in the walking, of wor- uh, walking worthy, there, there, are, there are implications for the transformation of other relationships within the church, within the broader scope of society. But Paul has been zeroing in in chapter 5 and now into chapter 6 with the transformative power of the gospel on the family. He addressed husbands and wives at the end of chapter 5, and now in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, Paul reveals that the truly Christian home is transformed as children and parents fulfill their respective responsibilities. Notice this passage, Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. We'll focus on for our message today. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, and let me read this verse 4 in the ESV because of just the way some of the words are translated, better understand. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A brief prayer. Our Father, everyone in this room is either a parent or a child, an offspring of parents, and we therefore have gospel-impacted responsibilities in that relationship. Give us insight into those duties today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul opens up this chapter, these first three verses, sharing the responsibilities or the duties that children have toward their parents. And it's a twofold, uh, a twofold duties that, duty that he expresses. The children are, first of all, to obey their parents, and then they are to honor their father and mother. I want to point out that the word children here, as he begins in verse 1, is a word that is general in its, uh, in its meaning, but it can be specific in its application. What I mean by that is kind of what I said in my prayer. Everyone here is either a parent or a child in this broader sense, uh, an offspring of parents. And so whether you're 80 or 8, you are a child of your parents. Now, the first verse, when he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, I think he's zeroing in on a, uh, a, a parenthesis of time for childhood. He's not talking about um, 65-year-old offspring of a 90-year-old parent and telling that 65-year-old, whatever your father do, you have to do. Understand the children of verse one 
you look at what he says in verse 4, when he says that the children, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And therefore, the children would be those who are still in the training state of life. It certainly wouldn't be applicable to a five-year-old. But look at the obedience that is to be rendered here. We can see a parallel passage to uh, Ephesians 6, 1 and following in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 20, uh, Paul says, Children, in all things is well-pleasing to the Lord. So when you take these two verses together, we find that the obedience that children render to parents is to be essentially total, essentially total. Parents in all things, in all things. Right away that says, you know, children are about to come up with some things. Well, what about, what about, what about? I said essentially total. It presupposes what is directed, what the parent is telling the child to do, is not something that is immoral or illegal or unethical or unbiblical. It's understandable. That's, that's the presupposition here. And insofar as what the parent is not demanding of the child is, uh, is legal, it's ethical, it's the right thing to do, then the child is to follow through. But I also want you to notice that for children, their duty, their obedience, is to be a spiritual service. He says, obey your parents. The Lord himself giving the command. As if the Lord... Wife looked at that the husband is Christ himself, because the, not that the husband is Christ by any means, but that she recognizes that the husband is in a position of responsibility uh, delegated by Christ. And likewise here, children are to obey their parents, recognizing that mom and dad are in a position of responsibility and authority delegated to them by Jesus. And so, Lord would expect obedience of himself. Parents have a right to expect obedience of their children as the representatives of the Lord. This is a spiritual service. So, so children should look at their obedience to parents as a, an act of obedience to Christ, as, a, as an aspect or uh, an area of their own spiritual growth and development. And obedience to be parents are to mother as well as father. Uh, par- uh, children can children are very good at uh, around this, right? Well, what about what about if Dad tells me to do something and Mom tells me to do something contradictory to that, or Mom tells me to do something that would 
preclude what dad has told me to do? Who, whom do I obey? Whom do I obey? And uh, the answer to that question is you, you go to your coin out of the piggy bank and you flip it and it's heads, it's dad, tails, it's mom. <laughs> no, not really. Um, generally speaking, you obey the uh, chief authority. So if, if dad tells you to mow the lawn, for example, and mom says to you, um, you don't have to mow the lawn. Now, you don't, you don't let the parents pit one against the other. You mow the lawn, for example. And there are so many other things in that regard we could talk about. But, but you get the point. The, the both respected. Both parents are to be obeyed. Your obedience is to be impartial. So one of the duties that children have to their parents is that of obedience. The second is that of honor. Honor. He says in verse 2, honor thy father and mother. This idea of honoring implies, um, it implies a lot of things. It implies, more than, it implies more than putting them up on a pedestal. It implies love. You have a love for the ones who gave you life. It implies a high regard for. You say, well, you don't know my parents. My parents aren't perfect. <laughs> I know that, and so do they. They know it better than you do, I guarantee you. I got a news flash for you. Neither are you. It's like, wouldn't, you wouldn't you like to just kind of grab some of these young people by the collar who are wanting to tear down monuments of great, uh, great leaders and heroes of the past because they had flaws. I mean, it's like the only people on the planet that are the ones wanting to tear down these monuments. They're the paragons of virtue, the paragons of perfection. And so it's, yes, it's very easy to look at the moat in somebody else's eye and dishonor them or disrespect them because of that moat and fail to see the beam that is plunged in your own eye. No, parents are to be highly of their, their weaknesses and their failures and their imperfections. They're to, you're to give them consideration. You're to give them deference. All of these ideas are wrapped up in this word, honor your parents. And this this. I shouldn't say secondary, second, actually mere obedience. Because we all understand that we can obey without giving honor. We can render what we're supposed to render and have a pretty lousy, rotten attitude in the process of rendering it and be very disrespectful to those whom we are obeying. No, we not only need to obey children, we need to respect and honor the parents. And this aspect or this command is one that expands beyond childhood. There certainly comes a point in our development when we are not to be subject to every whim and, and uh, directive that a parent 
But the idea of honoring and respecting our parents is, uh, is a lifelong responsibility. We never lose responsibility to honor. And this honoring is again to both of our parents, mothers, fathers. Why? Why is children growing up and as even adult children of parents? It's simply the right thing to do. It's the right thing. At the end of verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is proper. I mean, you don't have to do a whole lot of thinking to figure that one out, do you? I mean, who gave you life? Who has provided for you through the years of your life, however long you've lived so far? Who has sacrificed incredibly for your welfare? I would encourage people who have the savvy to do a Google search, and that's pretty young these days. Don't do it right now. Do it later. Do a Google search that, that asks the question, how much does it cost to raise a child from birth to age 18? How much does it cost? And then ask yourself this question, how many years would it take me to pay that to pay that off if it was a loan to me. Yikes, I'd be doing that the rest of my life. And yet this is what your parents do. Sacrifice for you. So to honor them, it's only the right thing to do. Honor them because they are older and they are wiser. They really are. They have a great deal more experience to draw on than you do. And you've heard the, it's almost cliche thing, that, you know, when I, when I was... Uh, a sophomore, I, I, I couldn't believe how little my parents knew, you know, sophomore in high school. I couldn't believe they were so dumb, so how could they be so, so, yeah. yeah, then I got to be 25, 26 years old, and I realized, boy, they have really gotten smart. Yeah, they were just as smart when you were a sophomore. Why is it the right thing to do? Because... Those parents love you and care for you like nobody else will until you are yourself married. It's the right thing to do. The, the passage in Colossians 3, the parallel verse where Paul says, children, obey your parents, he gives another reason. He says, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Obey them because it pleases the Lord. Honor them because it pleases the Lord for you to do so. And then verse 3 gives third reason here in our text, Ephesians 6, that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth. It's actually personally advantageous for you to honor and obey your parents. Generally speaking, generally speaking, this is a maxim, this is a proverb, generally speaking, the child that honors and obeys his parents will have a more fruitful, greater quality life, and even a long life. There are a lot of reasons for that. I don't want to get to a particular point. But, but the, the 
things. God knows what he's talking about. You have a right relationship with your parents, and that will stand you in good stead all the days of your life. Children, you have a responsibility to your parents. Now look, in the husband and wife relationship, the wife is to submit herself to the husband's leadership, but, Paul said at the end of chapter 5, the husband is to make that submission easy by loving her well. All right, so you've got that dynamic, that interplay between husbands and wives. Wives are, are to submit to the authority or the responsibility and the leadership of the husband, but husbands are to so love their wives that that submission is a relatively easy thing to do. We've got a similar kind of dynamic here between the parent-child relationship. Children are to obey and honor their parents, but dad, dad is to make that easier for them by fulfilling his duties, by fulfilling his duties. And I think of this in relationship to the Grant household again. Ulysses was very respectful and obedient to his father. He did a great job fulfilling his duties as a child to his father. And he, did, now watch, watch, he did so even though his dad didn't make it very easy for him to do it. His dad was not a particularly kind and gracious man, and he wasn't one to sit down with his son and uh, talk things through with his son and ask him what are his aspirations, what would he like to do with his life. He didn't do any of that. He just made the decisions for him. Yeah, dad didn't do a very good job on his part. But Christian dads, you can, you can help your children um, make the, their responsibility, fulfilling their responsibility of obedience and honor easier as you fulfill your duties as a dad. And what are those duties? Well, the first one is to avoid provocation. Here in Ephesians verse 4, Paul says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Colossians 3 provides a parallel for us. And in Colossians 3, he, he doesn't add the words to wrath, and he actually uses a different word in our King James translated provoke. So there are two different, two different things that uh, dads can provoke their children to do or to be like. You can, dads, you can provoke your children to anger. That's what's going on here in verse 4. And, or, you can provoke your children to exasperation. Exasperation. And that's what Colossians is talking about. And you're to do neither. Don't provoke your children to anger and provoke your children to exasperation. And there are many ways that you can do that. Let me just share some of these ways with us. That gets, gets it uh, down to the nuts and bolts for us as dads. One of the ways that we can provoke children aspiration is excessively severe discipline. By meeting out a form of discipline that's beyond crying, if you will. We can provoke to anger or exasperation. The, the, 
12-year-old boy to go out and mow the lawn when it's 95 degrees. Do it now. Don't wait till the sun's set. Do it now. Don't wait till it gets cool. Do it now. Why? Because I said so. Now. Reasonable demand. And we can provoke abuse our authority. Justifying those demands and that hardness by playing from hard. Sometimes when we sense that they're wondering, but a rebellious spirit. But sometimes we have to play that trump card, but it should be rare. You know what the trump card I'm talking about is, don't you? Because I said so. Because I said so. And the unfortunate thing is that um, many fathers, because they don't want to deal with uh, any questions to their authority or any questions to their directives or anything like that, because they just don't want to deal with it, they use that all the time. Because I said so. And they do so in a harsh and an angry way. And the result of that over and over and over again is it provokes the child to anger provokes a child exasperation. We can provoke to anger or exasperation by showing favoritism. That, of course, is a special danger in a family with more than one child, showing favoritism. We can do it by discouraging the child, saying things in the category of, you'll never amount to anything. You can't do that. Or that they don't measure up in their appearance. You remember the, uh, if you're familiar with the story of the Phantom of the Opera, and, uh, you know, the Phantom was uh, a man with a terribly disfigured face, and it was disfigured at birth. And the reason that he wore a mask was not because when he got older, he was getting taunts and all the rest of that from other people, and it just easier thing to deal with or mask because his mother gave it to him when he was just a young infant a child he did she did not want to look at him what a discouraging thing for a child to grow up experiencing discouragement another way we can do it is by being overly protective and being a helicopter parent one writer has said if the little bird remains in the safety of the nest, it will never learn to fly. And this is one of the dangers that parents have as their children uh, reach an age of maturity. They don't know how to let go. They don't know how to let them go out of the nest. And they don't even push them out of the nest like they should. Instead, they want to keep them in the nest, and they, the child will never learn to fly. And by the way, moms and dads, let me... There's an, there's an incredibly difficult balance to maintain here, I understand, and I get it because I've been there. But there is a danger for us as parents, as our children grow up, Christianizing them. And what I mean by that, we, we so, we're so overly protective and so helicoptering of them that we micromanage everything them so that nothing looks out of place 
like it doesn't belong for the ideal perfect Christian. And we monitor everything so that and make sure that everything about your life is so. It's like we're trying to make them be um, window material, you know, like this is a Christian. And the problem is they may not even be Christians. They may be very compliant and they may go right along with it and they'll have all of the appearance of being good little Christians and uh, underneath it all they can be seething. You will not know about it until they have left the nest and then you discover all of your efforts at Christianizing those children by your overprotection and your helicoptering has been counterproductive. Instead of them living the Christian life, they've shunned the Christian facade and let the real person out. Well, another way that we can provoke to anger or exasperation is by expecting adult maturity. Expecting adult maturity. Expecting our, a child to have the self-control, the emotional control that an adult would have, to take initiative like a responsible adult would take, to have the self-discipline that an adult should have. When we expect a child, we can exasperate them. We can provoke them to anger or exasperation by failing to allow them to grow up, to grow up. That is, to make decisions of their own, to fail. We don't want them to fail, so we do everything we can to keep them from ever failing and thereby learning from the mistakes that they make. We don't let them take any risks whatsoever and enjoy either the success or lick the wounds of taking that risk. In this regard, I was listening yesterday, last evening, to a, an interview that a podcaster had with uh, Hugh Jackman. Some of you may know him. He's a, an actor of screen and stage. And Hugh Jackman uh, grew up in a Christian home. His dad, was, well, his dad was a believer. His dad came to Christ in a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, Jackman was just and uh, Jackman tells a story that when he was 22 years of age, he, he had a decision to make. It was an incredibly difficult decision for him because both choices were good choices. One, on one hand, he, he had the opportunity to go to, uh, to, to um, take a, play, a, a place, a role, in an ongoing weekly television program in Australia. He grew up in Australia. Or... He could go to a school and take, get, it, get some more education for three years. So on the one, he would make a lot of money. In the other, he would spend a lot of money. In the one, he could begin his career in a high note. In the other, he's putting it off. But he saw advantages to both of these things. And he's decide, trying to decide, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? 22 years old. And he went to his dad, and he said, Dad, here are my choices. What do I do? What should I do? His dad said, let me ask you, Dad. Your old son comes to you and such a thing. 
What would you do? What would you say? His dad said, I can't tell you that, son. Dad, why? You have to make this decision. And he pulled his hair out with that. He wanted his dad to give him the answer. So he went back and thought some more about it. And he finally realized, well, you know, I could make some good money if I went into this, you know, took this role. But I would be limiting my career if I did that. I would never be able to do Shakespeare for the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'd, I'd really kind of like to do that. If I go get some more education, I might be able to do that someday. So he finally decided on the education. And he went back to his dad, and he said, Dad, I've chosen to, I've chosen to go to school to take, take the education course. And his dad said, oh, thank God. And he said, you thought that was the best decision? I did. Yes, absolutely. So well, why didn't you just tell me and save me all the agony? And then his dad said this. He said, because you're and you need to make decisions for yourself and accept the consequences of those decisions. You can't rely on me to make your decisions for you all your life. Now, there was advice that went into that decision that, that was background, and I'll mention that in just a few minutes. But uh, what his dad was doing was allowing the years of training and impact in his son's life to have an impact on him at that particular time. And his son respected his father and appreciated his father rather than being exasperated. We can also provoke our children to anger or exasperation by not respecting how our child is wired. You know that famous verse, Proverbs 20, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. You know what that verse is really talking about? Train a child according to his way. That is, according to the way he is built, the way he is wired, according to his gifts and his talents, and the, and the, the way that God has invested him with abilities and skills. You train a child in that way and he'll not grow old and he'll not depart from when he grows old. So if you have a child that has a, a boy that has a more artistic bent and you're a dad who loves sports and you want to get your kid into all kinds of sports and you keep pushing him towards sports and pushing him towards sports and sports is just sport. You're setting yourself up for a child who's going to be angry and exasperated with you. Find out your child's bent. Discover that and respect it. Oh, and then we can provoke our child to anger or exasperation, of course, by the obvious, through abuse, emotional, verbal, physical abuse. By neglecting the child or her. Ian Hamilton said this. He said, parents must exercise their God-given authority over their children in a manner that draws children to them and not in a way that repels them. 
So dads, our responsibility is to avoid provocation. Just mentioned the other three responsibilities that Paul gives us here. It's our responsibility to provide for them. Nurture means, um, or to bring them up, to bring them up, to provide for them, to rear them. We are thirdly responsible to nurture them. The uh, King James puts it that way, nurture. The ESV that I read earlier translates that word discipline, and that's a better way of understanding this word. This is a focus on their behavior. So, we provide a framework for our child, a framework. We give rules, make sure they're reasonable. We provide guidelines. We provide responsibilities. It's a framework. That framework, if it's a good framework, will discipline and build discipline into the life of our children. With that framework, there come rewards, rewards for faithfulness. They may be of an allowance or, or some kind of special treat, should always be praise, rewards. But that framework also involves punishment, punishment for failure. But again, that must be reasonable, must be understood, and it must be fitting to the, to, the, um, to, the, to the violation of the framework. That's discipline. Nurture them. And then we are responsible to admonish them, to admonish them, to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The ESV translates that instruction. Again, I think it's a good... A good um, Discipline focuses on behavior. Admonition or instruction focuses on the heart and the mind. So this would involve, of course, teaching. It would involve warning. It would involve encouraging. You know, things like, I know you can do this, but always be honest. Always be honest. Again, in that interview that I was listening to with Hugh Jackman, one of the things he said that it falls in this line of instruction or admonition was he said, you know, we had rarely occasions where we sat down and gave instruction, formal instruction. But there were things he said from time to time that just stuck with me. And one of the things early in my childhood that he said that stuck with me that influenced that later decision was he told me, Always get as much education as you can. Keep learning. Never stop learning, his dad said. He learned that. He heard that when he was a child. And when he's a 22-year-old young man and he's forced, faced with a decision, which way do I go? This instruction came back to his mind and it, it shaped and influenced the decision that he finally made. The way his father instructed him, Jackman says when he was a teenager, 13, 14 years old, his dad had been converted by, uh, for, for six, seven, eight years by that time. And uh, Jackman himself was very involved in his church's youth group. And um, one, one day in youth group, uh, everybody got this packet of stuff to help them evangelize. And in that packet of stuff was a bumper sticker, one of those fish bumper stickers, you know, 
It was a bumper sticker. And uh, Hugh came home to his dad with his packet of stuff, and he pulled out that bumper sticker. He says, Dad, look, we got to put this on a car. And his dad said, no, son, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Some of us might raise our eyebrows at that. Why, why wouldn't you do that? This is a good way. And, and, and Hugh himself, he was kind of taken aback by that. He said, well, well Dad, this is, we, we got to do this. This, is, gets our, this gets our message out. This identifies who we are. And his dad very wisely said, son, who we are is not defined by a symbol on the back of our car. It's defined by how we live. Whoa. Now here, Jacqueline was 52, three years old, and he's sharing that, that incident from his teen years that has stuck with him all these years. This was his father's admonition. And then dad's, it's our responsibility to provide a Christian home. We are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So we are informed in our child-rearing, we are informed by what God and what God likes. And that establishes the foundation of our discipline and our instruction. We nurture an admonition in the Lord. Now, and admittedly, this passage presuppose that dads are dads who love Christ. They're dads who are Christians. If you are, you're going to have a Christian home. But it does mean that you can. If mom and dad fulfill their relationship responsibilities toward one another, and if dads lead their children right, not perfectly, please, rightly, if children obey and respect their parents, they can have a Christian home, which of course leads us to ask ourselves the question, how are we doing our homes? How are our families? Let's pray and ask God to answer that question for us. And so our Father, I pray as we contemplate this this morning, realize there are many, many, many ways these principles can be applied day life. And even as we've looked at some of these today, some of these truths, the wheels were turning. We were pondering. We were considering what do we need to do? How do we need to change? So our Father, I pray, speak to us even in these closing moments, I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.